to humans, leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. I can hardly believe I'm going to say this, but it's true. This week's guest is Sir John Timpson. It's Sir John Timpson. <clears throat> so if you're thinking, who is John Timpson? Let me tell you a little story. You may know by now that I'm on a mission to find imaginal leaders. So some time ago, in the pre-COVID world, I was heading to a meeting and I was wearing my very favorite glitter sandals. Now, I've had those sandals for a really, really long time and they're a little bit knackered, but I absolutely love them. Anyway, I'm on my way to this very important meeting and they snapped. So I hobbled across to the nearest Timpsons. I was distraught. I was on my way to an important meeting and I had no shoes and these were my favorite shoes. And the chap in the shop said, don't worry, love, we'll have them fixed in no time. Just pop next door for a cold drink. So I did. And 10 minutes later, he rang. Uh, they're fixed. Thank you so much, I say to him. How much do I owe you? Oh, don't worry about it, love, he says. You don't have to pay me anything. It's such a pleasure just to put that smile on your face. I was completely baffled. What kind of a company gives their colleagues that kind of autonomy? So I went away to read about Timpsons. What I found out and what you're about to hear is beyond inspirational. Sir John Timpson is the man who built that kind of a company. You already know why I'm dedicating time to make this podcast. It's for all of you who are working inside large, complex organizations and they're struggling to get the best from your people. It's tough. We all know it's tough. And so this podcast is your audio fuel kit, packed with the stories, the tools and the inspiration we all need to shine as leaders. But today's stories, believe me, will give you a much needed shot of energy. They will inspire you because John has succeeded. He has proved beyond reasonable doubt that success comes from understanding that a leader's only job is to create environments in which people feel respected, rewarded, recognized, trusted, where they can be 100% themselves. So before, sorry, I'm just going to calm myself down here. Before I introduce you to John, I do want to just say a really, really, really big thank you to all of you that have sent feedback and suggestions. It really is important to me. It energizes me. So please head over to catskeely.com and sign up to the Humans Leading Humans newsletter and reach out to me on LinkedIn. And now to the really interesting bit. Oh my God, I'm so excited. It's time for you to meet Sir John Timpson. So Sir John Timpson, um, it was, I guess it was, you know, 10 years ago that I, well, for 20 years, I've been helping large organizations through digital transformation. And then I guess it was 10 years ago where I decided to give everything else up 
and figure out how we could show leaders how they could understand that your only job as a leader is to create the environments in which humans thrive. The rest of it is, you know, your job is to curate anyway. So then I came across you and your story, and you are the manifestation for all of the things that I'm starting to find out, all of the research I was doing about behavioral science, and I read your story, and I was like, oh my God. So anyway, as uh, a lovely shared friend from Barclay said, I am a bit of a fangirl, so I am so honored that you've agreed to be on Humans, Leading Humans, and in time-honored fashion, I wonder whether you could just tell the audience what have you done, not what are you, because what you are is this incredibly courageous, inspirational guy. What have you done? In terms of my career, I've done almost totally the opposite of what I expected. I started in the retail side of our business. It was a family business, and I expected just to follow the family tradition. But it didn't work out like that. At one point, the business went out of the family, and I finished up doing a management buyout, which I didn't even know what it was. That was in 1983. And then I sold the shoe retail business, which was the thing that my great-grandfather started. That was a bitter disappointment. I couldn't carry it on. And I finished up with the shoe repair business. I was totally unsuited to because I might have been able to sell shoes. I've been a shop assistant when that first started. But they stuck me in the shoe repair factory and discovered I am absolutely practically useless. I couldn't repair a shoe and I can't really cut a key. So I'm left not being able to do things, but... I think probably it made me think a bit more as, as to how we, we run this. And um, so that's that's how I finished up running a shoe repair business at a time when shoe repairs was going downhill. Every other shoe repairer was gradually going out of business, and yet we're still here. So uh, something went right. That's perhaps what we're going to talk about, some of those things, I hope. Absolutely. When you say that you're still here, I think you've done quite well, haven't you? When we sold the shoe shop, we just had the shoe repair business. We had 145 shops, I think, making very little money, about 300,000 a year. We've now got of all sorts. It's a bit different. We've been a bit of a roller coaster through the COVID thing. But basically, we've got about 2,100 shops of all types now, making about 20 million a year, maybe a bit more of the way it's going. So it's all bad. <laughs> no, no it's, I don't think you should always measure your achievements in terms of number of shops or turnover or profit. I think probably our greatest achievement is in terms of people, is that uh, we've got, whatever it is, 4,000 something or other, amazing people who actually most of them, I hope, really enjoy it. That's what the business is. It's those people. It isn't the shops. It isn't the turnover. We call them our colleagues. We're all colleagues because we're all in it together. And, of course, there is a relationship between people and profit. You look after your people well, the profit happens. Absolutely. So, John Simpson, tell me story number one. It seems sensible just to tell you how we actually got to run the business the way we do, where the business model comes from. Very simply, we still had a few competitors in the 1990s. In fact, there was one dominant competitor who got a low more money than I had because it had just been taken over by a Swiss bank. 
And I went there to see them to say, will you sell me the UK business? Because they, they had shoe repair units all over the world. And uh, the merchant banker just turned to me and said, look, no, I don't know why you're talking about buying part of our business, because quite clearly what we're good at is buying family businesses and putting in professional management. And you're very much on our list. So stand by the phone because it's going to be us ringing you. That was a sort of big warning, I suppose, in some ways, alarm bell there. But here I've got someone with loads of money who could open shops next to me and pinch all my best stuff and cut the prices. What can I do? And then it became obvious the only thing I could do was be bloody good at looking after our customers, doing the job better than anyone else and giving them an amazing service. And it was then I discovered, because I'd read a book about Nordstrom and it was in there too, that the only way to give fantastic service is to trust the people on the front line to do it the way they want. If you look at that Nordstrom book, which is still around, the Nordstrom way, right in the middle of it is a management chart which is upside down. All the people who are serving customers at the top and everyone else in the organisation there to support them because the people at the top are the ones who determine the success and run the day-to-day part of the business. So I got that, and I thought, well, this is the best way I can meet the challenge of the competition I've got. And uh, so I was hooked, I was on a mission, and I went round all the shops saying, from now on, I've scrapped all the rules. We were a rule-based business up to then. We had standing orders for shoe repair factory. They had to do everything exactly the same way. From now on, two rules. Rule one, you've got to look the part. I want you to be smart, wear the uniform, keep the shop clean and all that sort of thing. And rule two, you've got to put the money in the till. Outside of those two rules, you can do whatever you think is the right thing to do to look after your customers. And I went around preaching. I put a notice in every shop saying the colleagues in this shop have got my authority to do whatever they wish to blah, 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 all that. And nothing happened. I was on this, I spent three months going around shops because... While I was going around, there was an area manager toddling after me saying, don't take any notes of what John says. You work for me. But when I challenged them on that, they said, well, how can we be responsible for our part of the business if we can't tell people what to do? And eventually I realised there were three main obstacles that stopped me making this what I call upside-down management work. One was head office. I had to get rid of head office, not physically, in its concept, in its name. I did not want to have people at the centre thinking they knew everything, telling everyone else in the field what to do. It just is the wrong way to do it. Head office, we call it Timson House, but what other people call head office, does the strategy, decides on the investment plans, but then they leave it to the people out in the field who actually other people that do things to put the strategy into practice. You don't need what lots of head offices do, people who are coming up with, Lots of policies that they turn into processes that then they make sure that everyone out in the field does it their way, bearing in mind they don't know as much about it as the people who actually meet the customers. And they even go as far as then sending surveys out to make sure that the people in the front line are doing the way they've been told to do, even though they know they could do it better. So that's what get rid of that office. Make sure that the people in your central facility are making sure that the people in the front line have got all the things they need to do the job and clear any obstacles that are getting in the way, especially if it's paperwork. 
the next thing is the way you do the day-to-day management had to change. I, I introduced another rule which says you can't tell anyone what to do. No orders must be given. So the middle managers had to work out, how do I run my part of the business? How do I run my team? If I can't tell them what to do, no orders. Well, it becomes obvious. They run their team, which is what our lot do now, by looking looking after their people and helping them to be the best they can possibly be. And that's what a manager is there for. A lot of our area teams spend a fair deal of time helping their colleagues with problems outside work, which are quite often the blocks that get in the way of performing really well. So a completely different concept. They're not doing orders and coming up with plans. They're looking after people. That's what they do. And then the third and final sort of big learning thing was it only works with the right people. For my way to run the business work, you've got to have people with oodles of personality. They've got to be fun. They've got to get on with other people. They've got to be positive. And we were employing shoe repairers and key cutters. Didn't want shoe repairers and key cutters. I could train that. I wanted people with personality. Meaning you can get the most fantastic, skillful, but grumpy cobbler, and they'll still be grumpy. Whereas I've got people in the business, and I've got one particular guy, been running the shop in Taunton for years. He is a personality. Just about everyone in Taunton knows Bob, and which is why it takes three times as much money as it should do. They don't go to see Bob just because he can repair shoes and cut keys, but he's such fun. It's the highlight of your day to go in that. So that's what I wanted, but we were trying to employ the wrong people. So we managed to train everybody to look for people with personality and use little cartoons to do it. I'm not interested in the CV. I don't care what qualifications they've got, what they put on the interview form. I produced my own interview form, which has um, got these little cartoons of Mr. Keen, Mrs. Helpful, Mr. Punchel, and so on. And there's the other lot of Mr. Scruffy, Mr. Dull, and Mrs. Late. And uh, they tick the boxes that most suited the person in front of them. And then if you've got the positives, we try them out, give them a trial day, paid trial day. And that's how we pick our people. We've been doing that for 25 years and that's why we've got so many bubbly people in our shops so that was the story that that's that's how we created what we call upside down management unbelievable unbelievable and it's just as you're talking there's a couple of things so vince said in his podcast that a business's only job is to win and keep a customer and for me the common sense thing is well of course the people who touch the customers have to be the most important part of your business. So everything you've just said there and the fact that you're talking about trust and autonomy and empowerment. And then there was one thing that you said there at the end, which is this sense of fun, which, you know, in many of the corporates that I work with, there is a fundamental fear of fun. It's like people think that being fun and playful and business are diametrically opposed. Yeah. Well, we don't do loads of surveys. We don't have a dashboard, which is another thing. For most businesses, you have a dashboard, which tells you loads and loads of things about what the uh, workforce think of the business and what the public thinks, which is desperately unhelpful in my view. But we do have a survey. It happens once a year, and it's got one question. We call it the happy index, and we ask everybody to fill in this thing, which says on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you rate the support you get from your area team. And there's space for comments. And that tells us all we need to know. 
we only want people who come and enjoy their job. Because one thing I didn't say, which is we talked about selecting people, but we don't always get it right. But one of the things that I think a lot of businesses get wrong is they hang on to the wrong people for too long and they believe they can't say goodbye to them. And, you know, it's one of the unkindest things you can do to a star performer is to expect them to spend their working life alongside somebody who actually turns up late, moans when they get there, is always slagging off the boss, generally bloody miserable. That's not fair. That's why HR departments spend over 85% of their time on the people who are useless. You think about it. And the only way to deal with that is, this I learned from Disney, is if you've got someone who doesn't fit into the organisation, then they're unhappy. So the kindest thing you can do is to don't bother about warning letters and these uh, performance uh, programmes to up their game and all that sort of thing. Have a talk to them and say, look, it's quite clear we've made a mistake, you've made a mistake. We're not right for you. I can see you're not happy. So what we're going to do together is we'll be as generous as we can, as quick as we can, and as nice as we can, but we're going to together help you find your happiness working elsewhere. And it worked. worked. Yes. Not not with everybody. There are some people who are gagging to have a tribunal, which they very seldom finish up doing. We, We get very, very few. Some people have that conversation, and I've known some of our managers have a hug at the end. They're saying, do you know what? You're going to help my life. Thank you very much. By sucking basically. You will know this because of who you are, but uh, Zappos have a a funny little thing that they do where they have this quite rigorous, crazy, fun recruitment process to see if they're the right for the company. Very fun and frivolous. And when they offer people the job, they say to them, we're offering the job because we think you're right for this company. But if at any point you don't feel happy over the next couple of months, we will pay you. We'll give you $2,000 to leave because we don't want you here. We want to have people who love where we are, which is, again, very smart. I think that, actually, I like that idea. I'll make a note of it because uh, it has to be £2,000, not dollars. But that saves you a load of money. It really does because, you know, someone admits, not for me, and you say, thank goodness, size all around, thank goodness. We don't have to bother about Dave anymore, who's... uh, already stopped it's causing me not to go to sleep and there's such an energy sapper one of the you know the ease of the create framework is energy you need to be given energy not have it taken away so if you've got somebody there who's miserable of course they're going to sap everybody's energy mm. thank you that was the most amazing first story john what's story number two i think the story starts when my son james who runs everything these days has done for nearly 20 years now he went to a networking event which was taking place in a prison called Thorn Cross, which is near Warrington. As well as having a little bit of a conference, they had a tour of the prison. And the tour was given, in each case, individually by one of the inmates. And the guy that took James around impressed James so much. He said, well, when you get out, get in touch. I'll find you a job. He was the first guy. He's still with us uh, 19 years later. He was the first of what... James called his foundation program, which was to employ people from prison to work in the business. So what his mother said, right, if you can employ one, you can employ 10. So he set about finding 10, of course, didn't quite know how to go about it. So went around a few prisons and finding people and chatting to them. And 
tried to be really courageous and, and employed some people who were far too naughty to work out well, but he learned through a number of lessons through that. And then he opened some prison workshops because he wanted to show the prison world what a workshop should look like. And in ours, they weren't dull. They, they looked like one of our shops. And when the uh, inmates went into the workshop, they put our uniform on, so it felt exactly like being at work. So he started on that path, um, but he kept quiet about it. And I was very pleased he did because I was worried as to what would the customers think, what would our colleagues think working alongside them. Until there was a newspaper, and you probably guess which one it was, had a headline, Cons Taught to Cut Keys. So that's when I put in our weekly newsletter, The Sun Won't Stop Us, The Sun being the newspaper, of course. So it was out in the open. And, you know, amazing response. Some customers said, well, I'll never get any keys cut there again. Why? Uh, but most said, you know what, that's fantastic. That says something really good about this business. So it was a positive and the people who worked alongside the people who joined us from prison, they're the, the real heroes and heroines of this because without their help in training and in particular being a mentor and being sympathetic to the problems happening in their lives, they wouldn't have made it. I mean, it, it, it's... But someone leaving prison, the job is one of the most vital parts of the kit they need. They need somewhere to live. They need some money. Uh, but most of all, they need somebody to live with if possible, but they need a job. So over the years, we said, we'll, we'll do a few more. We'll do a few more. And now it's something like 12% of our workforce have joined us. We recruit them the same way in terms of we've, they've got to be Mr. Happy, Mrs. Keen, and so on. We've got to be the same personality. That's how we do it. And the best way to get them started, if we can, is what we call rotal released on temporary license, of getting people to work for us in our shops while they're still serving the end of their sentence. So they come out during the day, work in the shops, and they go back to prison at night. And we've had several cases of people becoming managers of their shop before they've left prison, which is one of the first things we do when they come out and work in the shops is we ask them to go and bank the money. We show them they're trusted. And also, I should emphasize, they're on exactly the same terms as everyone else. So they've got the same opportunities for promotion and so on. And we've had a lot of really good careers now developing. Quite often, they'll sort of stand out and chat, chat to me and... Uh, very often the phrase is, thank you very much, you've changed my life. Not me, I haven't done it. They mean the business has changed life. Simply because they feel valued, they feel trusted, they've got something different to live for. Even though there's one guy explained that I have a much better life now. I've got a regular job, I take the uh, pay packet every month and hand it to the missus and much more normal. And I'm not having to worry, going to sleep every night, worrying that the police might be hammering at the door. Mind you, he said, I earn a fraction of the money I was getting out of drug dealing, but it's a better life and I enjoy the family. And it took a job with you to break the chain because I was going in and out of Wandsworth or wherever it was. So it certainly has made a big difference. It's brought some really good people to us. I mean, we have gained some fantastic colleagues through this and and I think it's brought the best out of the people they work with as well. It's probably saved the country an enormous amount of money, bearing in mind it costs whatever it is, 60000 a year or something, maybe more to keep someone in prison. You know, John, you say, oh, well, it's, you know, it 
brings tears to my eyes hearing that story because one of the things I've always believed to be true is doing good is good business. That's the truth. And you know, you're talking there about trust in a number of different levels. John, you were like, well, I'm going to empower you to do what you think is right. I trust you to do this. Your customers, you trust them. Barack talked about this in another uh, weeks. You know, if you, you trust customers to do the right thing, some of them won't, but most of them will. And then you're talking about your prisoners. I mean, like that's counterintuitive. You can imagine lots of people going, oh my God, I could never do that. But you trusted it and you saw what happened. And then there's something there about equity that actually you give them the same amount of money as your other colleagues. You treat them as fairly as anybody else. So has anything ever gone wrong? Bound to. I mean, we very occasionally get the recruitment wrong, as we do whether the person is in prison or just coming in the normal way. One or two, it's pretty spectacular. Uh, but it's so infrequent that, that I can remember the stories where uh, someone goes wild and actually nicks their boss's credit card and pays for their partner to uh, hire a car on our company. And, I mean, that was a particularly dramatic one. But as I say, there's so few and far between, I can remember the individual ones. Yeah, I mean, but... If you were to ever do anything that says guarantees it won't go wrong, then you won't get anywhere. Our approach to a lot of these things, we, we cut out all the security stuff that other companies would design to stop people nicking money from the till. Our way of dealing with it is to say, if you've got a financial problem, tell us about it, because we can lend you some money. We think that's a better way of handling it. But we still have one or two people who are tempted with a where they are, I suppose. But at least we're not hampering the lives of the 98% who are absolutely straight and honest, or 99 We're not hampering them by putting lots and lots of restrictions on just so that we can stop the 1% or the 2%. It seems a daft way to run a business, to gear it to being totally risk-averse. Take a few risks. You know, go for it. Yeah, and I mean, I come across this all of the time. We you know people saying, oh, yeah, but, you know, some people are always going to be lazy. And I say, well, yeah, some people will, but they're a small proportion. If you create the environments in which people feel valued and trusted and, and you give them, you know, the autonomy to do what they think is right in that situation. I love that story so much. And, you know, listeners at home, you can't see me, but I'm grinning away like a little grinny thing. Last and final story, John, thank you. The third one goes back 26 years, something like that, when I visited a branch as it was then in West Bromwich. And I met, for the first time, I met a guy called Glenn Edwards. We'd just taken over the business that this shop was part of a chain, and it was fairly new to us. And so it wasn't surprising that Glenn was new to me. But he said, do you, do you mind? Uh, I'm doing a few watch repairs, which what we didn't do. I don't mind at all, but just tell me, how much are you taking a week? What's the turnover? Well, £100, 150 something like that. So, okay, I mean, the, the whole shop was taking about 1500 so that's pretty useful. So that's great, that's fine. And uh, so what about that bit? And as a result of, if he can do that, other people, other shops as well. And so we picked four shops and put watch repairs in those, and it was pretty poor fashion when I think back, but we did it. Uh and they were taking a bit less than Glenn because Glenn knew what he was doing. But it was still, we were quite pleased with £75 a week. It showed there was a business there. 
and we're thinking, are we going to go for this or not? And then I had, I had one of those absolute strike of a light bulb moment, which which produced quite. Luckily, we were talking to people from Eight Samuels, the jewellers, a long time ago, and they were wanting to run some sort of service with us on engraving, which we did. They didn't, and they were just between the shops locally and don't seem quite sensible thing to do. But then they said, we're not going to do this with you if you're a competitor. So I thought, well, yeah, but we still need to sell our tankards and engravable items that you have. No, 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 don't mean that. We were in Salisbury the other day and saw that you're starting to do watch repairs. Watch repairs are very important to us. We've got a turnover of 13 and a half million. Well, that's all I needed to know. So I never pursued the engraving contract with them and pressed the button a lot harder on uh, on watch repairs. But it, it wasn't one of those things that most businesses do. Here's the plan and we're going to do it in every shop and then it's going to roll out and there's a PowerPoint presentation to show why it worked. And no, we did a few more like Salisbury, like the others. And then, then we discovered there was a horology technology training centre in Newark, and so we shipped loads of our people in there. We also had one or two qualified watch repairers to get the exp- expertise in, but actually we found they didn't take much money themselves because they didn't have the salesmanship, probably didn't have the personality, but we learned some skills from them. And so it started to increase, and the odd shop took oh, £200 in a week. Then we thought, what are we going to do next? We, we took one shop, which was in East, Eastbourne. We've got a really big shop, the precinct down there. And uh, so we just said, Let, let's just have a go. Let's take the whole of the front of the shop, give it over to display of watch repairs. And so we did that, and it's straight away started to take £1,000 a week. And then we found that where we had a couple of specialist watch repair shops, it took more and more and more. And so that's how we developed the whole business. We needed it because when I started, our shops just did shoe repairs. Shoe repairs is hardly anything now because it's gone down and down and down as people buy cheaper and more durable shoes and they just don't want to get their shoes repaired quite the same way. That's the, the reason why cobblers cut keys was a sort of funny question because they had to do something else and keys were something which, which a cobbler was happy to do. Now, I wondered whether a cobbler would be happy to do watch repairs, but they loved it. And they loved it so much, they taught each other how to do it. And now we have little WhatsApp groups and a lot of our, our expertise isn't developed by training. Training courses, it's, it's done by people training each other. So a lot of the things that happen, they don't happen from head office at all. don't have a head office. It's done by the people in the field who are not just looking after customers the way they want, but they're developing the business the way they want because it's in their interest to do so because they get a, a share of the turnover that they take each week. So, And Glenn, who sadly has just retired, he's retired just short of 25 years, but he's going to join our 25-year-long service presentation in November, which we can be, do it face-to-face. He became our watch guru. He started our central watch work repair workshop. He, he, he became our greatest trainer. He was right at the centre of the development of a watch repairs, right from the very first person to do it, and then the first person to have a central sort of facility for us. And so... It was probably a good idea to take a risk and say, yeah, why don't you carry on, Glenn? So that was hardly a very sort of 
big market research or anything, but it, it's done the job. And our watch repair turnover now is about 35 million, maybe 40 million. Whoa, no, not, not bad at all. Not bad at all. Honestly, I mean, I, uh, now everybody thinks that the latest buzzword is agility and resilience, and you, you've been doing it. You've seen what's happened. You've empowered people. You've listened to people. You've seen what works. You've grown on that. You've this is agile at scale in a company that you just wouldn't really associate with agility. It's such such an amazing story. Three amazing stories, and I think we've gone slightly over time. But I could listen to you forever, in all honesty. So before we leave. In time-honoured ritual, what should we call your episode of Humans Leading Humans? I just call it common sense. Common sense. John, I can't thank you enough. You're an inspiration. Thank you so much. Have a lovely, lovely rest of day. Thanks very much. Oh, dear listeners, you can't see me but there were a number of times during that interview when my eyes welled up now that's what i call leadership and john timpson you are one of my guiding lights i can't thank you enough for joining me and sharing your stories and dedicating that time to humans leading humans and i can't thank you enough either dear listeners for joining us on our learning journey i really hope that you enjoyed it as much as i did and I know that you know this already, but I fiercely believe that everything can be better, always. So I really, really want to get your feedback. What did you love? What really resonated with you? What could I do better? What do you want more of? Is there somebody that you think deserves to join our list of imaginal guests? So if you've got any suggestions or comments or feedback, or of course, a story that you think will inspire listeners in next week's episode, head over to catskeely.com or do feel free to DM me on LinkedIn. Next week's guest is Leanne from Heathrow. She is heading up technology at Heathrow, a big airport at a very, very troubled time. She's an amazing woman and I can't wait to hear which story she chooses to share. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people this podcast is brought to you in partnership with the marketing society if you are a senior leader and you need the know-how and the networks to succeed and you're not already a member get over to their website and become part of that tribe the notes are below i would 100 percent recommend it a massive, massive thanks to the fantastic Super Terrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to wearebeep.com to find out more about the CREATE framework and how we support companies by unlocking the problem-solving potential of humans. If you love this podcast, pass it on to your friends and your colleagues. Subscribe. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. The links are in the notes. Be inspired, be imaginal, be more human, and I'll see you next week. Bye.